Welcome to Attachment Theory in Action, a weekly podcast presented by the Knowledge Center at Chaddock. Join host Karen Doyle Buckwalter for an insightful, informative, and inspiring conversation with leading researchers, authors, and clinicians discussing issues in attachment theory. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Attachment Theory in Action podcast. I'm your host, Karen Doyle Buckwalter, joining you here from Chadak with another episode. I'm really looking forward to sharing this interview with you, and I want to tell you a little bit about my guest today. Uh, Kate Haberman is going to be joining us, and she's an LISW, an MFT, and an RPTS, and she has has a practice in Iowa is called the Center for Foundational and Relational Wellness and she works specifically with children who have attachment disruptions and traumatic experiences in their background. She's going to be talking with us very specifically today about object relations and attachment theory and these ideas and practices come from her collaborating with Holly Van Golden. So if some of you have heard Holly speak in the past, um, some of these ideas will be familiar to you, but also Kate has refined some of them and has uh, additional things to share with us about them. Um, she's also a certified TheraPlay practitioner in addition to being a registered play therapist supervisor, as I mentioned at the start. And in 2019, Kate was awarded Play Therapist of the Year by the Iowa Association for Play Therapy. She works with families, couples, parents, child dyads and others who have often experienced early developmental trauma. So I think you are really going to enjoy hearing from her today. So hang on, she will be coming right up. Supporting children and families who have experienced great loss and endured extreme trauma is a daunting task. At Chaddock, we have the experience and longevity to understand the type of support needed to keep the best and brightest engaged with this work. In July, the Knowledge Center at Chaddock will launch the next session of the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute for helpers who seek to be rejuvenated and revitalized in their work with children and families. This type of renewal and confidence is a natural byproduct of gaining specialized knowledge, advanced skills, consultation, guidance, mentorship, and most importantly, being in a community providing the experience of being seen and understood. We have designed an experience and a soft place to land where all of these needs will be met in one central place. For more information on the Developmental Trauma and Attachment Institute, to join the waitlist for more information or to sign up, visit tkcchaddock.org. So Kate, it's so good to continue this conversation with you about object permanence and constancy and how it relates to attachment and caring for children. Thank you so much for continuing to be here to talk about this. Of course. 
Yeah. So, you know, we gave some basic definitions in our last episode about permanence, which is, you know, a person or yourself still exists, even if out of sensory contact, like you can realize that that person's not completely gone. And we compared it to, you know, the developmental stage with with toddlers, where you can hide something behind your back and they go to look for it. And in an earlier stage, they're, they're not looking. It's just like, well, I guess that's gone. You right, know? right. And then, of course, the constancy, which you have such a nice definition of no matter what part is being experienced, all other parts continue to exist. And I think as we talk more today, people are going to understand why that's so important right. um, to not lose the good and kind part of your caregiver or yourself. Right. Because then you're left in a really unsafe situation. Right. Yeah. So as um, Kate, as you look at some of these ideas, and I don't know that there's a definitive way to assess all of this, although I know you do have a parent child assessment that that you use, but I don't think there's a diagnostic thing label we can say, okay, this this child is at, you know, 22 months, you know, even though they're six, maybe there is. Um, But one of the ways of assessing this that I've heard about is using an armadillo puppet. So some of our play therapists here who use puppets may um, be aware of that. Could you share a little bit about the armadillo puppet in the in the Holly Van Golden tradition. Yes. yes. <laughs> so, right. The concept of permanence, the idea of when I see it and it disappears, can I hold the idea that it still exists? And so, you know, when you, when you're assessing or meeting with somebody, um, you get your armadillo puppet and the armadillo head comes out and talks to the person and just kind of has a quick interaction and then it hides And you take a few minutes and you observe what happens to the person at that time. You know, it can, it can range from kind of laughter and that, that may be nervous laughter. It could be almost a look of fear or sort of checking out like a disassociation almost happens and and you assess what's happening. You can even ask them, you know, where did, where did the armadillo go? What happened? And Sometimes you're going to see that that person, if they're staying in that quick response, not maybe their chronological development logic place, but often they start to see the armadillo has disappeared and now all we have is the ball. All we have is the shell of the armadillo. And can that person call it a ball? Yes. Adults will call it that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've had kids say, oh, it's a ball. Yes. Yes. And they really say shell, (laughs) right? Right. It's not even the armadillo. There's no part of the armadillo that's there. Yes. Mm -hmm. I agree. And, um, and, and really looking at how hard is that concept for them to grasp onto that? Can they hold the idea that the armadillo is still the armadillo, even though what you see right now is the ball? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Are there any other things that you might do early in therapy as you're starting to maybe assess permanence and constancy within a child? So, you know, when I first meet a child and if I know that they have, they're coming from some disrupted attachment, 
those are the, that's really the lens I'm looking at initially. And I, I'm, I'm looking at what are the behaviors they're coming in with? So often kids come to therapy because of behaviors initially. Yes. Um, so if they're the behaviors, you know, common, common behaviors of, per, of a disruption and permanence are things like stealing, um, con, you know, frequent wedding or messing themselves, um, that wouldn't be due to what would be developmentally appropriate. Um, you know, difficulty falling asleep, thinking even of like separation anxiety, um, a lot of sensory stimulation. So we're starting to look at, um, those common behaviors that are typically the frustrating behaviors, Mm -hmm. losing homework all the time, not valuing property. Um, They have a hard time doing, um, hanging on to what the rule or expectation is when the teacher or the parents not in the room. So those are, you know, during that intake, I'm already starting to look at what are the behaviors? What are the expectations of behaviors? Um, Obviously we're gonna look at their history, um, what we know about their history. But then in sessions, I start to really do things like, you know, we play in the sand tray and are they hiding things and not looking for them, right? Or not asking me to look for them. Again, we would look at what's developmentally typical um, um, or I might start to challenge them. Like, ooh, I hid something, can you find it? Do you want to find it? Kids with very little permanence often disengage from that. It's it doesn't feel good because they can't really hold that concept that that thing is still there. Mm-hmm. Um, we may do a lot of work on making handprints and making impressions and 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 doing a lot of uh, reflection or. Um, you know, paraphrasing of, oh, your hand still exists, even when you take it away. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So those typical sort of hide and seek things. Yes. And, you know, we're both TheraPlay therapists, so we're always going to have a blanket in the room. So right, I would exactly. love if you could share uh, some of the things that you might do with a blanket or a sheet. Sure. Regarding this issue. Sure. sure. And again, you know, the the important part when we're starting to practice or even assess this is that we want to do it in a playful, um, respectful way. So in Holly Van Golden's book, the, the learning the dance of attachment, it's a great tool for recognizing how to sort of transfer the, the goals of establishing permanence or assessing permanence in a way that, you know, for a 12 year old is going to feel okay, not Mm -hmm. demeaning. Um, So for with a blanket or a scarf in the room, or, you know, even Kleenex, if that's all you got, um, starting to do sort of that, like, oh, I'm going to hide something under here. Like, can you guess what cup this marble is under as I'm moving the marble, right? Or um, you could do peekaboo with a a small child you could do hide and seek with a little bit older of a child yes um you could do even putting sunglasses on or putting a mask on with a child who's maybe a little bit older and not not making it so blatant of Mm -hmm. can you tell i'm here can you not tell i'm here Mm -hmm. but just the idea of let's say it's an 11 year old and you have a pair of sunglasses and being fun about it. Like, Hey, do these make me look cool? And then you pull the sunglasses down and you look at them in the eyes and then you put the sunglasses back up. And so you're having a conversation or an engagement with them that feels okay for an 11 year old. It's not Mm -hmm. embarrassing. It doesn't feel Mm -hmm. weird, but you're still working on a concept that at six months you would have been working on. 
Yes. And with a younger child, actually, you could hide the parent under the blanket and, you know, the child can find them. And, you know, we can talk about, oh, they were under there and now here they are and that kind of thing. Right. Right. And how fun it can be to work on those concepts in a playful way. Um, Most children love to seek for things or a parent who can really engage in that. It's a fun thing, right? It becomes something like, oh, I bet you can't, I bet you don't know where I'm at. Or even can you give me a clue? Can you make a sound? It can, you know, the hot and cold game, you know, you're getting hotter, you're getting hotter, you're getting colder and helping, helping the parent understand why engagement like that is so important, why that activity, what your goal is in that activity and how basic it is because you're really working on a basic concept. Yes. Such an easy activity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I I think back to many parents um, have done the thing where they look all around the room for their child, you know, under the bed, behind the door, the child's like under, you know, I think of this a lot of times at bedtime and the the child's kind of hiding under the covers, you know, trying to withhold squealing and delay. Right. 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 You know, and Mm -hmm. and sometimes I, I'll hide if I have a child that I don't want to put under a blanket alone. Sure. I might hide under there with them. And, you know, and it, uh, you know, Kate, I have to say, I don't even know if that wears off for adults. Like, I who doesn't want to hide under a blanket and have everyone be really yes. silly and look for them behind the couch and under the desk? And, yes. You know, and right. then voila, we find yes. you. I mean, there's right. something so symbolic about that experience of being found. Well, and you think about what it feels like to be found, right? That that idea of I, oh, I value you and you bringing me, you're bringing me joy. And I'm looking at you with that look of like, there you are. Right. And, and those I, searched, are, I searched for you yes. until I found you. And those are concepts that, that children with disrupted attachment don't naturally get, you know, we miss the stage often of, you know, gazing and cooing and valuing of, oh, look at how cute you are. Look at how brown your eyes are those are stages that parents who are not able to give that attention or that, that bonding opportunity, that child misses that feeling. And so when we can do it in a way that's playful or exciting, it feels so good to the child or even to the adult to be Mm -hmm. able to give that Mm -hmm. you're repairing so many sort of lost moments of that initial attachment. Yes. And with repetition, you know, of doing this and um, demonstrating over and over, you know, I go away, you go away, I come back. I go away, you you know, I come back. So, you know, I want to emphasize this. This can be ongoing things that that you keep doing to establish that. Um, Even the simplicity of consistent therapy, right? You go away. And, and I'm still here. And then you come back and I'm going to greet you when you're here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I have a taking box in my office because mm-hmm. a lot of kids who struggle with permanence steal things. We've mm-hmm. all had that happen when our favorite Santra toys or our pens mm-hmm. disappear from our office or the kid who loves the business cards, you know, and, and they need to take something to hold the relationship. So they mm-hmm. need that transitional object. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, instead of even te- like explaining to teachers, the child who is taking things from you 
It's not the child who's angry at you. It's the child who wants to make sure that you are still there when they come back and that you'll still remember them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so offering them something from my office that's acceptable to me mm-hmm. and appropriate for them to take, because I have to recognize that they can't just expect that I will remember who they are or I will still be here when they come back. Yeah, and I really appreciate and want to emphasize your language around that of taking something that's not yours rather than stealing. Yes. Um, And I understand that you use that word to get the point across, but the other mentions of it, you said taking something. And I think that that is such a much better way to frame it, much less shaming and um, scary um, sounding for the right. child. And I think it's, those are the little shifts that I believe in my work with families is so significant for parents to start to incorporate mm-hmm. because it not only helps the child feel less shamed, but really the the narrative that the parent starts to, to hear or starts mm-hmm. to believe shifts. Yes. That they're taking something because they want that relationship with you so bad. Mm-hmm. Instead of they're stealing from you to hurt you, right? Mm-hmm. What huge difference of perspectives. Yes, yes. Um, another idea that you talk about is that identifying the behavior you want rather than what you don't want. Yes. So could you share a little bit about that? Right. So the idea of predictive success, right? The idea that I know right now this is hard for you. And I know you will be able to do it. And it's the idea that a lot of times parents are worried that, oh, my child is being helpless. And am I, am I enabling it too much? Or why are they not feeling that they can do the things that they really can do or they're able to do? And it's that idea of when things are hard and we have an expectation that the child should be able to do it. So we sort of say, your room is a mess, go clean your room, right? What we're doing is the child is feeling vulnerable and scared because it's a hard activity. And now we're abandoning abandoning them in the feeling. Yes. And so instead of that, we want to communicate to them, I know this is hard and I'm here with you and you will be able to do this on your own sooner than later. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they start to believe that narrative as well. Yes. That I do not have to be abandoned in something hard and developmentally making progress does not mean I will be abandoned. Mm-hmm. And I think this point that you're making about you'll eventually be able to do this because sometimes I feel like we're, we're so much saying you need to look at the child at their developmental age and not their chronological age. And I think sometimes we forget to say, but not forever. Right. Exactly. Like, and it, it feels a little yes. overwhelming. Like, yes. what? like, how are they ever going to like gain any kind of independence? Totally. <laughs> right. Because if we forgot that piece, right, we then have- that, that child sort of manifests this anxiety of like, Ooh, right. it's scary I think a to child do these things. You know, yes. Right. We don't stop there. We we don't stop at you're a six month old all the time. That would be not helpful to anybody. Yes. 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 um, And then you also talk about not doing 
and maybe this ties into to this, um, you know, not focusing on the negative behavior, but more on the behavior that we're working towards or but um, don't do the good bad split. You talk right, about right. not doing that. Um, say say a little bit more about that idea. So the idea of like sandwich statements or the idea of using the word and and how significant that is, you know, when we think of constancy, we're, we're recognizing that child struggles so much with that split of self of, Mm -hmm. you know, can I make a mistake and be loved and, and all of that. And so when we say something like, you know, I love you, but I don't like your behavior. Mm-hmm. We're just encouraging that separation of, mm-hmm. oh, I guess I should be loved or I can make a mistake. So really replacing the word, but with, and is such a simple concept, mm-hmm. but it's, it, it allows those two concepts to be held together. You know, yes. think of it almost like a Venn diagram, right? Like the middle part is the part that all of those pieces can fit in. Yes. So, you know, the, the, I love you does never has to stand alone. And I made a mistake never has to stand alone. We can bring those together by saying, I love you. And I would like you to do this instead of that. Right. And I think, you know, and I talk about, I'm very big on the, and, (laughs) and it's in, it's in, you know, our book too, raising the challenging child. And I like, because you can also say things and like you're saying this is sort of combining both ideas the the positive we are going to play a game and we're going to finish the dishes first yes right and so that comes across so differently yes and we can't play the game until you do the dishes right 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 because then there's a threat right it's kind of like oh so even you know holly would talk about even verbalizing it in i see you're using your lego part right now I see you're using your watching TV part right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering if you can shrink that a little bit, make that a little bit smaller. And can you start to use your coming to supper part? And it's using this fluidity in the language that all of those parts exist because kids that have very little constancy, when you ask them to put the Legos away, they have to turn off all of themselves. They have to put all of themselves away. Like all, uh, there's nothing in me but a Lego playing person. Here. Right. And how scary, right? How scary is that? And how frustrating is that? Because I'm having fun. Mm-hmm. And now you're telling me to, to put all that away. And you're asking me to come to something. Number one, that's scary. Because it's, it's, I don't know what I'm coming to. That's an expectation. And I don't know if I want to yet. So that transition of concept, that transition of thought, then has to be a transition of behavior. And those are really, really hard things for children that have a very weak constancy to do easily. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You also have a concept that you call checking in versus checking up that yes. I think is helpful too. So could you share with listeners a bit about that? And it's so helpful speaking from the, being the parent of a 13 year old, it is so helpful with the preteen age. Um, So the idea of, instead of saying like, have you brushed your teeth yet? Because when we, when we ask a question, we're already engaging the defenses. So we're already saying like, there's a right or wrong answer here. 
Have mm-hmm. you met my expectation? Mm-hmm. And, and just the idea, I have to produce an answer. Yes. You know, yes. like the pressure of yes. you know, producing an answer. Well, and, you know, when I shared about my my 13-year-old now who was six weeks, you know, she was diagnosed with selective mutism at age three. And so how that has transformed when you talked about sort of the pressure of producing, the pressure mm-hmm. of responding mm-hmm. and how much for her that complicates it even. So have you brushed your teeth has a whole lot of potential scariness with it. Mm-hmm. So instead of checking up on, instead of, you know, are you doing what I've asked you to do? Checking in and saying, what is your plan for brushing your teeth? When do you plan to do that? Mm -hmm. Because then it becomes the child's initiation of the plan of, Mm -hmm. well, I was going to do it after I watched my favorite show on TV. And if anything, even if you don't get a response, you're engaging the brain to think about something in a way that feels safe. And it doesn't feel like they're going to fail with the response that they might give you. Because it's, it's more, I don't know if this word fits, but empowering. Right. And giving them a sense of efficacy, which again is a big issue with a lot of kids who their behaviors did not produce caretaking or relational things that they needed. So they have low sense of efficacy. Right. So, you know, there's a, it's, there's a lot of win-wins with, with an approach Right. And it's taking for granted again, that, that I can sort of take a risk or I can, um, make a choice that empowerment piece Mm -hmm. and still be loved in it. Many kids that have disrupted attachment learn early on, I can't trust anybody. So I have to figure it out by myself. Mm -hmm. And then as they get into more healthy relationships, they struggle with allowing somebody to help them figure it out. It becomes yes. sort of like, I don't trust that you know what's best for me. I'm the only person who knows what's best for me. The asking for help is such a vulnerable position. Yes. Yeah. So I feel like I'm asking this question out of order and I should have asked it earlier, but I feel like I can't finish this interview without this concept of what happens outside goes inside. Yes. And um, I think some of that relates to these strategies we're talking about but i feel like no talk about this topic is complete without that right right it it so, really becomes their their worldview and their narrative right yeah, so, so so when when you from object relations and permanency and constancy and all of this when you say what happens outside goes inside what are you meaning by that you know, and it can be kind of both concepts. So what's happening on the outside when they're infants. So the inconsistency, the, the lack of consistent caregiver, the lack of value becomes an internal view, an internal sort of regulatory response of on the outside, I didn't get taken care of. So on the inside, I must not be worth being taken care of. Mm-hmm. And then And then kind of the next part is, and because I don't believe I'm worth being taken care of, I'm not going to let you take care of me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it's very much um, transformed within sort of the self dialogue, the view that a child or as an infant 
what they feel about themselves and what they learn about themselves is 100% reliant on how the people around them have responded to them. Yes. And I understand that it, it may not be different than what Bowlby is saying about the internal working model, right. but somehow I associate that line with these ideas and it sort of strikes in a different way. Right. Um, yeah. Right. And I think it, in my, in my view, it, it allows us to have more compassion for a child who has had disrupted attachment. Because again, the object, the, the concept of permanence and constancy, the first part of that statement is the ability to take it for granted. Mm-hmm. Right. So somebody with a healthy attachment has the ability to take it for granted that I am valued enough to be loved. Mm-hmm. That's, that's it. That's all there is to it. And mm-hmm. a child that has not had those experiences cannot take that for granted. So yeah. when they're 13 and they're sabotaging their relationships, we have to remember that they never got to take it for granted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Kate, before we say goodbye to you, are there any workshops or websites or anything books yours or holly's or anything that you would like to recommend if these ideas really resonated with someone and they want to learn more where could they go so i'm hoping they resonate with everybody right that's my soapbox but um the first thing i would recommend is holly's book learning the dance of attachment Um, i think it is a wonderful guide for parents foster parents um, therapist, but it's so practical and it's so it's full of ideas and tools. Um, and then another, another thing that we just created was a therapist desk reference. Um, so it's an 11 page document, um, kind of made for, you know, the idea is for, as a therapist, for you to hang on your, hang next to your desk, um, And it has all of these main concepts of constancy, permanence, um, parent redos, um, predictive success, all of the concepts that Holly and I have have sort of collaborated with about this object relations theory. And we've made it into a handout, um, a therapist guide, and with kind of related um, handouts that you can copy and give to the parent as you're sort of teaching the parent how to implement these concepts in the home as well. Um, and that you can find um, on our website. Um, Which is? it's Our website is, it's a long title, so get ready. Um, it's www.foundationalandrelationalwellness.com. Okay. Um, and I also believe um, the self-esteem shop is selling them as well. Okay. Um, so I haven't looked recently, but I know that that was the plan. Um, and there's always the ability if you're having a hard time finding it to contact me and we can get that ordered for you. All right. Um, well, thank you so much. Um, this is just been really great, Kate, and we appreciate you giving your time to the Attachment Theory and Action podcast and sharing your wisdom and knowledge with our listeners. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you for joining us for this edition of Attachment Theory in Action. Please follow our site, tkcchaddock.org, or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts for future episodes. If you enjoy our podcast, please leave a review and share with your professional network. For additional resources, training opportunities, and blogs, please visit tkcchaddock.org. We hope you'll join us again as we continue to explore the world of adoption, trauma, and attachment theory. 